Chapter 3 Peter Ellison 10.25 hours, 17th of October, 2047, STI Zone 2, Level 4. They were watched. He knew it. So, bypassing the Mondrian, the Picasso, and the Rembrandt merchant, Ignoring Cezanne's cathedral trees and a dreamy, rosy, Renoir girl leaning on a keyboard, he kept his eyes front, gazing fixedly into a blank screen. The Visicom. Fool to have been so cocksure. Hengst had held the strings the whole time. He the puppet politician jerking at the master's whim. Thanks to his own stupidity, no one earthside even knew he was gone. Falling hell to have come up with only cats. A door in the right wall opened, and there cats stood. Showered, shaved, grey hair slicked back, but still in his own grey woollen jumpsuit. The collar was crumpled, the creases gone to folds, but otherwise immaculate as ever. Sir? Cats knew they were watched, was asking for a cue. Sit down. Cats sat, folding his small, neat hands in his lap. Despite the composure, his mind was going at a clip. Ellison could bet on it. Cats. The grey eyes gleamed watchful behind the antique gold-rimmed glasses. Try the visicon. Before Cats could comply, it lit up, and there was Hengst's steely smile. Controller, you slept well? They both knew he'd sat vigil in that chair all night. Breakfast is coming, bon appetit. Hengst's face cut, but the screen stayed on, showing now an outside view of the complex. From this distance, Space Tectonics Inc., or STI, resembled a pre-tech baby's rattle, slowly revolving in the blackness of space with the sick brown glob of earth behind it. The hard thing was to judge the scale, 
How many hundreds of kilometres long was that massive hollow shaft with bulbous ends? The larger bulb, tilting towards Earth, housed the fusion piles that powered the complex. The smaller one, a glass-domed observatory, tilted towards the outer planets. And in between, four sets of four concentric rings, equally spaced along the upper two-thirds of the spindle, rotating at different rates to provide whatever gravity their functions required. These rings, or levels, numbered one to four outwards, and each hole was termed a zone. The four levels in each zone were connected by eight radial tunnels, shafts serviced by a series of elevators, separated by double locks, going up towards the spindle and down towards space. The zone nearest to the observatory, Zone 1, classified R and D, was occupied solely by boffos, techs and serves. Level 4, in the second zone where Ellison was right now, housed admin personnel, Hengst's own command quarters, the three levels going up into lower gravities serving as non-classified chemical processing areas. The third zone housed light industry, the bottom one, foundries and heavy manufacturing shops. The whole complex was webbed in by cables, glistening like gossamer in the glare of giant arcs. To one side hung a maze of scaffolding within which cargo ships were tethered, auxiliary shuttles plying back and forth from airlock to loading dock like small white lice. In Zone 4, fat grey tubs unloaded lunar ore from what had been Ellison mines until Hengst, scoring in the last war, had stripped the Ellisons and everyone else from the heavens. The view cut to inside shots now, to miles of looping permaplast tongue, to scanner views of factory floors, a foundry, silver-suited workers pouring molten alloy, a low-grav lab, white-clad boffos bouncing to and fro, vast steamy hydroponics houses, metal mills, chambers full of twisted pipes extruding tortured streams of liquid thermoplast to be caught and sealed under pressure into great metal canisters, moulding shops and warehouses piled with finished forms ready for shipment to earth, small homely things, chairs and tables, beds, baths and shelves, huge sections of more vital stuff, 
prefabricated domes piled high, enough to house Earth's entire population, so why were they never enough? A tantalising glimpse of a weapons hall, the latest anti-personnel heads stacked on a tractor bed. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. A slot opened in the service wall, and a robocaddy rumbled through. Breakfast. Rage had given Ellison an appetite. It was good. Real, like his own food. Not your soy this and that. Granola. Apple pulp. Omelette. Wheat toast. Coffee full cream milk. While Katz reached for the coffee, Ellison helped himself to granola. He would not, must not, betray weakness or fear at this show of power. He poured milk, stirred it in. Haste wanted Frinnis. Hadn't they shaken on the deal? Ellison had promised Frinnis's location in return for a say in who got what and when from Hengst's arsenal. Of all men on earth, Ellison considered that he himself cared most for its survival, understood best how to ensure it. The Hesycaster had come to him, warning of another war. It was while verifying the old man's claims to these visions by a Tannis Ord's synergizer that those inexplicable psi transmissions had begun. The synergizer had boosted the Hesycaster's psi powers, Ord said, but whatever the explanation, those star charts had been sent, giving by their configurations the location of this second Eden somewhere in the Pleiades. Watching the Frinnis strips, he, Ellison, had figured how to prevent this second Holocaust his way not by world disarmament, as Zakian urged, but by fair arms distribution among the powers. His bargaining chip? The charts? Not an ethically pristine solution, but fires of hell. The old man still won something. And Hengst still had his arms market intact. Which had to mean something after all, star charts notwithstanding. It was going to take the guy some time to find a drive to take ships that far. The Pleiades, for God's sakes! In the heyday of space travel, before everything got shot to hell, no man's ships had even gone a tenth as far. So why had the man taken him hostage? And why the move 
to get the chance at all. Not hard to figure. The dog in the manger still wanted everything, and to stick it to Ellison into the bargain. There was so much bad blood between them. Hengst had brought down the Ellison Empire, and Ellison's grandfather had died in the doing. Rage surged once again, and this time he couldn't even risk an Eheim. Wouldn't give Hengst the satisfaction. Instead, poke-faced, he kept his spoon moving at an even rate, slowly emptying his dish. Only two places Hengst could get those charts. One, from the Hesycaster's mind. Two, from the records of the charts. From Ellison's own unlinked files. So it wasn't over yet. The old man would never let Hengst strip his mind. And if McAllister was the man Ellison thought him, he'd never let Hengst get his fat hands on the strips either, unless Ellison told him to. Mr. Chairman, I trust the food is to your liking. Hengst was back on screen, seated at his desk, looking straight at them. Ellison set down his spoon with a slight clink. Would they talk now, or what? Hengst's office door slid open, and Ellison bit back a cry. In the doorway stood a shortish man, medium build in gunmetal suit, ramrod back, bottle brush eyebrows, short moustache, shiny skull. General Voltoff, Ellison's former rival for the World Council Chair, defeated thanks to Umboda and the Emirates. What infirling hell was he doing up here? The man crossed the floor with brisk short steps as Hengst stood up, extended a hand. Ah, General, a pleasure. I hope you had a smooth trip. Voltoff bowed, took the offered seat. The viewpoint shifted to the two men in profile. Hengst's square, fleshy head bobbing on his shoulders, jaws scraping his collar. Voltoff's neck poking up like a turtle's thin beak nose. Why the summons, Hengst? Voltoff always spared his words. Summons? Hengst smiled. Let's call it a friendly invitation. The manufacturer leaned back, his square squat hands gripping the edge of his desk. He pointed down. 
don't believe what you hear down there. Another year, my boys tell me, and it will all be over. But your people up here have forecast a necessary fiction. Panic is a terrible thing. Only a year? How long have you known? Hengst touched a panel in his desk, and the wall behind him slid aside, revealing curved windows. Ellison made a sound in his throat. A fleet of silver ships, big as city domes, floated in the middle distance, tethered to a vast alloy grid stretching way into the dark. Dear God! They'd heard of Hengst's Starfleet, had taken surveillance shots of known state-of-the-art craft in various stages of development. Decoys! The sly bastard! Hengst gazed from the screen with patent pride. Our hope for a future, all ready to go. But Voltov couldn't take his eyes off the ships. I thought your star drive, there were problems. Solved, General. The cryonics too long since. Then why? We had no destination. Voltov leaned forward slightly. And now? One has been found. The devil it had! Ellison clenched his fists. German Ellison is informed? Of course. Then where is he? The question hung in the air. Voltov tried again. He knows I am here. Oh, yes. Hengst bared his teeth. He knows. So, what do you want with me? I've built sixteen ships. Each needs a skipper crew, and a civilian director. Voltov pulled his eyes from the screen. How many people do a ship? Six thousand. But that's nothing to what's down there. Now that's all the cryobanks will hold. What will happen to the rest? You tell me. Voltov slowly got to his feet. I demand a priority for my family. Hengst smacked his desk. I decide who goes or stays. Sit. Voltov sat. The flagship's mine, of course. You want the second? Voltov looked shaken. What? How can you pick? I have records going back 
to 25. I've been culling crews and passengers for one whole month. Three ships are filled already. Fires of hell! Ellison breathed out hard. My family. Walter was bleating. My wife. Hengst waved him shut. You get five slots, including your own. Fill them how you like. Except, well, I... Yes or no? Yes. Good. I'll have you piped aboard now. Voltov was on his feet again. But I... Goodbye, Voltov. Voltov bowed his head and left. Rejoice, Ellison. As the door closed on Voltov, Hengst grinned into the scanner. There goes the opposition. You can't do this, Ellison said. You can't play God. Hengst spread his hands. A ship in exchange for the star charts. If I refuse, he'd not lick ass like Voltov. Hengst shrugged. I've sent down for your unlinked files. Ellison clenched his fists. And if they're gone? Hengst laughed outright. I have the old man. Ellison stood in the shower, the scalding steam pulses pounding his sore flesh. All day he'd sat out there, watching an endless stream of people cross Hengst's office floor, many he believed to be his allies. He grabbed a body brush, scrubbed savagely. Din Park Chin, Hayden, and Sevigny of the Middle European Bloc, Schmidt and the Ram Singh, and worst of all, Mboda's great bulk waddling across that floor, his slab teeth gleaming, smiling cheeks bunched into bossy walls of ebony as powerful black hand engulfed Hank's white one and the arms pumped up and down. Ellison squeezed up his eyes, remembering. Umboda, the man who clenched his presidential seat. If it hadn't been enough to see that one squeezing his fat ass into Hank's chair, the rest had been worse. Hengst, aware of the scene's witness, as Umboda was not, had led the African leader to rehearse the full, humiliating truth that Hengst had been behind it all along. Ellison threw down the brush and stood, staring at misty tile. Why had Hengst tipped the scales to favour him? Did Hengst think him easier to dominate than Voltov? Ellison shook his head. No. It was because he was an Ellison. Nothing more, nothing less. Humiliation 
was the game, and Hengst was winning. A sudden thump startled him. Cats, through the steam haze, pointed to the sitting room. Ellison nodded. Cats disappeared. Quickly, he moved into the relative chill of the dressing room, scrambled into a clean jumpsuit. Then, still brushing down his hair, he hurried into the sitting room. In the visicom screen, a cubicle and a bed tangled in pipes and drip feeds. The hesicaster had arrived. Ellison sat, his eyes on the old man who lay upon it. Pride screamed at him to get up and walk away. But he did a quick yeehaw, relaxed, as Hengst entered and stood looking down at the hesicaster's unconscious face. One glance out at Ellison, then Hengst curtly signalled through an observation panel to a frieze of boffers milling in the next room. The hesicaster stirred, sighed, and opened his eyes. He looked like hell. Tranked out, of course. Now they were shooting him stims. Jesus, they were going to kill him. Ellison clenched his jaw, performed an eheim, relaxed. The old man turned his head, appeared to see Hengst for the first time. But Ellison wasn't fooled. He knew something of Pazakian's powers. Ezekastar, are you comfortable? The old man stared past Hengst's right ear. Ezekastar, Hengst repeated, frowning at the boffos, who were busy looking busy. In his own good time, the old man turned his head. I hear you, he said, and Ellison was strangely cheered. I hear, the old man meant, but I won't necessarily listen. Hengst leaned closer, shouting in the man's ears as though he were a half-wit or deaf. You're not on Earthside any more. Oh? Ellison glanced to Katz. He was also savouring the moment. Every flutter of Pazakian's eyelids, every wavery monosyllable, made Hengst look more and more the Duke. Hengst saw it, but he ploughed on, gesturing vaguely outwards. I've a fleet of ships out there, Hesicaster, ready to take us out. As soon as you've told me where Frenis is. The old man smiled. I'm no astronomer. You 
have the stellar configurations in your memory. The smile remained. This is an observation room. Yes. Near your office? Pretty near. Hank's brows came together. And you visit it often? Hank's face darkened. I don't see how many doors between here and there. Hard. You can't say. The old man closed his eyes. Hengst glared up at the bottle team, jerked his finger downwards, then towards the control panel in the room beyond. The old man's eyes opened again, swiveled to Hengst. What? You still here? they said. I want those charts. Hengst said flatly, all pretense to patience gone. What you won't give, my men will take. Only if I wish it. You'll have no choice. Fazakian nodded slightly. Maybe we can deal. Ellison jumped up, moved towards the screen. Deal? Hengst folded his arms. What deal? The Hesycaster looked genuinely tired now. Give me a starship to do with as I will, and you shall have your chance. Hengst threw back his head and laughed. No deal. I have you, you have the charts. I'll pull them in a week. Bezakian shook his head. I have your granddaughter, Hengst said softly. Ellison looked to Katz. Ye gods! If Hengst had Shira, he had Susan also, and Sven! Laugh, Katz murmured. He'd have the strips, too. Ellison was not so sure. The unlink file was double-coded, set to scramble if broached. Hengst's men could have botched it. Katz shook his head. Look at the old man, he whispered. Ellison looked. Pazakian didn't seem in the least concerned. The old man's eyes had closed again, and remained so. Hengst's face was a mask. I get the strips. In the end, I win. No response. Take him down and keep him down. Hengst snapped. The Visicom cut. Katz shot Ellison a quick, what did I tell you? But Ellison took no comfort in that. He, a virtual prisoner to the man he hated most in the world, 
was being made to witness who got what and when, while the rest of the world went to hell in a bucket. Ellison smashed a fist into his palm. Shearer. Oh, six, fourteen hours. The 18th of October, 2047. RCH station number P3 stroke 14. When Shearer awoke, Suzanne was lying opposite, out. She crept to the bathroom and took a quick shower. Then she went to the mess room for some breakfast. Rufus was just finishing. Hi, how are we this morning? Okay, I guess. Suzanne? Sleeping. I never heard her come in. She wouldn't go to bed until Sven came to, and that was after four. Oh? Shearer helped herself to toast and soika. That kid. I know they got problems at that age, but this one. What happened? Rufus rolled his eyes. He told Suzanne to get out. Where's McAllister? Rufus shot her a look. With him now. He poured himself more soika. We're watching him around the clock. Shearer nodded. In his present state, Sven was a menace to himself, to them all. A thought went back to McAllister, or rather, Jess. Rufus was watching her expectantly. The woman he mentioned last night, Jess, you mean? Rufus cocked his head. Alastair's wife. Shearer nodded uncomfortably. What was she like? Beautiful, he said simply. We were all in the same class at Edinburgh. We all would have died for her. She chose Mac. What? Was she studying? Criminal law. She'd have made a darn good barrister. Practical, good speaker, persuasive. She could wrap Mac around her finger. Did. How? For a time, we thought they'd not get hitched. He was doing a lot of test flights. It bothered her until they broke up altogether, then, just like that, he gave up space, took up ciphering. When she saw that he was really going to stick with it, they got married, which made it so damned ironic in the end. Ironic? When the first wave of bombs fell, Rufus shot her a keen look. Mac and I, well, we never speak about it, got it? She nodded. Alistair hadn't seen his old flying buddies from the day he quit. But that week he'd gone to a reunion, Space Side. 
He was there when Jess got wiped in the first wave along with 50 million others. He dropped out of sight. Never heard of him for years until one day he buzzed a station I was in. Alistair McAllister, a radio rat. But then look at me, stuck here. We stay in touch, we reminisce, but as I said, we've left Jess alone. Until last night. Jess. Beautiful Jess. Future lawyer. McAllister's wife. Any... Any children? They hadn't gotten round to it. They were so young. They had all the time in the world. Rufus pushed back his chair. My watch gotta go. Shira finished breakfast alone. McAllister must have loved Jess very much to give up being a pilot. Shira sighed. Would a man ever love her that way? She shoved her empties down the service hatch and went back to her cubicle. Suzanne was awake. Good morning, Shira. Where is everyone? McAllister's with Sven. Shira perched awkwardly. I'm sorry about Sven, she said, and really meant it. Thanks, Suzanne said in a low voice. I've been expecting something, I suppose. He's been so quiet for so long. But I wasn't prepared for this. I think he hates me. She looked close to tears. Have you any notion why? Shira shifted uncomfortably. Ask Sven. He won't speak to me. He might now. Shira doubted it. But what else could she say? No. There's something on his mind, and I can't shake it out of him. Would you? Could you? Read Sven. Shearer made to leave. Look, I said I'm sorry, but this is between you and Sven. Suzanne struggled up. Sorry? You little hypocrite! You are enjoying this. You hate me for what Peter did, and you intend to make me pay. That's sick, Shearer said, and opened the door. Suzanne ran across and grabbed her arm. Listen, I didn't sell your grandfather out. You were party to it. He'll be all right, Shearer. Shira shook free. How can you say that? Grandfather is an old man, too old to have all this happening. Shira looked upward. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. I don't know if he'll survive. Oh, he will. He has more strength than you or I, nor Peter, 
God knows what haste will do with him. Mrs. Ellison, my grandfather was taken against his will. Your husband went up there of his own accord. I hope he gets what he deserves. What an ugly thing to say! Suzanne flushed dark red. You know, for all they say, you're no better than anybody else. Shira fled, making for the elevator. She heard Suzanne call after her, then the doors closed, and she was mercifully going up. God, the Ellisons! But for them, she and Grandfather would still be home. By the time she reached the upper level, she was shaking so much she could scarcely climb the stairs. Thank you.